may be seated. Children uh, can be dismissed to Children's Church. And if you would locate Mark chapter number 11 in your scriptures. Thanks everybody, as always. What a blessing. What a blessing. Thank you. Mark 11 in your scriptures. And we have some unfinished business this morning from last week's sermon. I intend, uh, by God's grace, to finish it. Beginning in verse 20, and they passed by in the morning. They saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, that is to Jesus, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. And Jesus answered them, have faith in God. Now, Father, I pray that uh, you would sanctify us with your truth. For your word is truth. Lost luggage has been in the news lately. I believe it was Delta Airlines that filled up an entire airplane with luggage that was lost in Europe, flew it back to the United States. No passengers on the plane, just luggage. Lost luggage has been part of the conversation in the Prater home because our son was in Europe during that uh, time uh, on business with the Air Force. Uh, he got home, uh, but his luggage lost. Maybe you caught in our own local area in the news a lost dog roaming the countryside. The dog has been found. The business that was supposed to take care of the dog no longer exists. My son's luggage yet to be found. That was three weeks ago. When Jesus enters Jerusalem, he is the only person who is not lost. He's the only person in the entire world who is not lost. The general population, including the disciples, they are lost. The GPS of their expectations has led them down a road that will end with disappointment. The religious leaders are lost. Instead of turning from their sins, they are going deeper into the darkness of their sins. Rome is lost, drunk with its power and fame. But Jesus is not lost. He is precisely where he needed to be. And because he was precisely where he needed to be, he was able to do exactly what was needed to be done. When Jesus tells his disciples to have faith in God, he is actually appealing to the tradition of faith that had been ingrained in them since birth. This appeal to faith, however, is going to be a challenge for them because what Jesus is doing in this particular moment and then will do in the days that lie ahead is to relocate their faith away from those traditions that they had been taught and had practiced and into him as the fulfillment of the faith that they had been given. 
must have sounded strange for them to hear Jesus say that forgiveness for their sins will no longer be located in the temple. That the temple is going to be cast into the sea. He doesn't mean a literal body of water, but the sea in Scripture often represents a place of chaos, a place of oblivion, a place of darkness. So when Jesus says this mountain is going to be cast into the sea, that mountain representing the temple, which would have been right in front of them, it's all going to be done away with, put away into this darkness, into this place of oblivion, into this place of chaos. But Jesus doesn't just stop with the tradition of the temple. He also is telling them in this passage, and you see it there, uh, if you were to read on in verse 24, I tell you whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone so that your Father who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. What? No priest? No sacrifice? No offering? Somehow they are just going to stand before God and pray? That's new. Where did that come from? All of their lives they had been taught in tradition to bring their sacrifices to the temple. The priest would offer on their behalf. That through the Levitical priesthood established in the Old Covenant, sins would be forgiven, hearts set right, God would hear prayer. Strange language indeed. But if God's people are going to actually escape the lostness of their expectations, if the religious community is going to be made free from the blindness of their traditions, and if the outside or if the world outside of Judaism, as represented by Rome, is going to be made free from their pride and their arrogance, it will have to be through faith in what God is doing. It will have to be through faith what God is doing and what God will do in Jesus Christ. Now we should keep in mind that when Jesus is telling the disciples to have faith, it would have been when it appears that the ministry of Jesus has reached its highest point. Just a day or two prior to this, they had entered into the city of Jerusalem. A parade awaited them. They're throwing their coats on the ground, and there is Jesus. Everyone is excited about this populist leader entering into the holy temple or into the holy city. He then enters the temple. He takes action. They like action. He takes action. He drives out the money changers from the temple. But to have faith in God did not mean taking back Israel from the hand of their enemies by force, by human means, by human methods. If the promises that you read in Genesis are going to be fulfilled in Abraham, they will not be fulfilled by humans. God will do it. And God will do it through his son, Jesus Christ. It didn't mean taking Israel back from the hand of their enemies by force. Instead, it meant 
that they would indeed now become the blessing to the world that God had intended for them to be. When he said to Abraham, I will bless you and all of the nations of the earth will be blessed. And what we begin to see here is how faith then subverts the presence and the power of evil that had been at work. For it is through faith that evil is overcome. But let me remind you that developing great faith isn't necessarily the goal of a disciple of Jesus. That sounds counterintuitive. Instead, we should be developing faith that is rooted in Jesus, who is the great one. Because it is through Jesus that the blessing is centrally located. Because Jesus is the one who rises up out of the story of humanity and shows himself to be the faithful Israelite. The one who is going to fulfill the covenant. The one who is going to, through his perfect obedience, provide salvation not only for his people, the Jews, but for the entire world. Now, with that introduction and that foundation, I want to devote the rest of this sermon to working it out because many, and myself included, by the way, struggle with how to tell this incredible story. How do we communicate this in the day and age in which we live? And then I, I want to devote the rest of the sermon to working this out because in this room, it's very possible that there are people who have yet left the old systems of self-salvation. And you are not trusting fully in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins. It is an incredible story that God has loved us in Christ, that he has forgiven us, that he has undone death's grip, and now is saving us through Jesus and through Jesus alone. We, we should begin by saying that within just a few days of the entry of Jesus, the popular, well-respected, again, the populist leader of the Jews, Within just five days of his entrance into the city of Jerusalem, he is then led out of the city, condemned to death, carrying a cross. Instead of hearing the crowds shout out, you know, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, they are shouting out, crucify him, crucify him. He is taken outside of the city to a small hilltop called Golgotha, the place of the skull. Literally, it was a garbage dump. It was the place where they would deposit anything dead. That's why it was called the place of the skull. Not just because the hillside itself was in the shape of a skull, but because what was there was death. He was in every way a God-forsaken place. And we got to ask, who is on either side of Jesus as he is hanging nailed 
from his cross. Is it James and John, the ones who wanted to be seated on either side of Jesus in his kingdom? No, the Lord of glory is being crucified between two thieves. Below him on the ground, the religious people are passing by. They're mocking him. Hey, you up there on the cross, you said you were going to destroy the temple and three days later you're going to rebuild it. How do you plan on pulling that one off? You can't even save yourself. How are you going to save others? You can't save yourself. How are you going to save others? I mean, what a loser Jesus must have looked like. Three years of power, three years of miracles, three years of popularity, the big parade five days later, shamed, hanging, naked on a cross. All hope appears to be lost in those six hours that Jesus hung there, but hope wasn't lost. Hope wasn't lost, and here's why. If you were to look back from Golgotha's hillside across Jerusalem, you know what you would see? The Temple Mount. You would see the Temple Mount. That would be the place where forgiveness for sins was to be found. Lamb after lamb is being taken, offered to the priest, the priest offering that lamb on behalf of the people. It's Passover week. The city is full, celebrating their great redemption and deliverance out of Egypt to the land of promise. Thousands of years, they practice Passover. That's where deliverance is to be found. It's to be found in the temple. And for those on the other side, outside the city, on a little hilltop, it would appear that salvation is very far away from them. It's out of reach. They're nailed to a cross. They can't come down. They can't save themselves. But here's the thing we have to keep in mind. In terms of proximity, the ones being crucified outside of the city are actually nearer to salvation than the ones across the city who are bringing their sacrifices into the temple. On that God-forsaken hillside, each and every person there in proximity are nearer to salvation than the thousands of people streaming into the temple with their sacrifices. You say, well, how is that possible? Well, eventually we're going to get to Mark 15, but in that scene in Mark 15, when Mark writes about the crucifixion of Jesus. He tells us that in the moments after Jesus cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He bows his head. He breathes his last. And when that happens, the veil of the temple, this barrier that kept people out of the holy of holy place, the place where you would meet God, that veil is torn from top to bottom. Or, in another way you might say, the mountain was just cast into the sea. Because now, salvation is no longer found 
in the sacrificial system of bringing your offerings to the priest. But salvation is now found in the crucified one. On top of a garbage heap, in shame and agony nailed to a cross. The old covenant of forgiveness being obtained by ritual sacrifice now officially ended in the once for all sacrifice of Jesus. A new covenant has been enacted so that Paul, some years later, could write, therefore, being justified by faith, what do we have? Peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. It's an incredible story, isn't it? To have faith in God now means to look to the crucified Jesus. To believe that through his blood shed and only through his blood shed are sins forever forgiven. If you believe that, I I pray that right now your soul is just like stirred within you. It's rising up into the very presence of God. And you were giving thanks that someone was willing to step into the chaos and darkness that someone was willing to stand at the center of it all, all of the mess of humanity, to stand there in the midst of its darkness, in the midst of its ugliness, and that someone is Jesus, the new Adam, the one who offers to restore our life and restore our joy that was all lost in the old Adam, And the question then for us today, for each and every person in my hearing, the question is this, do you have faith in what God has done in Jesus, that what God has done in Jesus will indeed save you, will indeed rescue you, will indeed recover you from your lostness, from your lostness? Is that something you believe? You see, to reject this gift of love given through grace then is to condemn yourself into a life of confusion. It is to condemn yourself into a life of chaos. It is to condemn yourself into a life of darkness. This confusion and chaos and darkness comes in all sorts of forms. One of the most popular, of course, is our own inherent goodness, our good works, the things that, of course, God will be pleased with. I'm a hard-working American, save my money, and I do nice things to people. Of course, God's going to receive me into his presence. 95 degrees yesterday. We're sitting in our house, enjoying some time with our grandkids. My wife says, somebody's out there on a bicycle. I look out, sure enough, there's somebody out there on their bicycle, getting off their bicycle holding two empty bottles, it looked like. And I go out, I say, hey, can you help me? The guy's ridden his bicycle from, um, from western Massachusetts, from Northampton. Now, now, for some who are real cyclists, you say, well, that's just a nice little afternoon ride. But for most human beings, it's like, what, well, the guy doesn't own a car, what's going on? But he rode his bicycle, and he's standing there, it's 95 degrees. I walk out, I said, can I help you? He goes, well, I could use some water. And I said, well, come on. You know, he sits down, and I fill up the water thing, and he's drinking water, and we're talking. 
And I asked him if he knew about Jonathan Edwards, because, of course, Jonathan Edwards preached in Northampton, and, oh, yes, sinners in the hands of angry God and all of that. And Avery drank some, filled up his water. We chatted. He got on his bicycle and left. And I just earned my salvation. I did a really nice thing for somebody. And God looked down, and God said, Kenny, you finally got it. Enter into the joy of my kingdom. No. No. Holy, inadequate to fulfill the righteous demands of a holy God. Have you got that ingrained inside your brain? And is it trickling down into your heart? And is it getting worked out in your life day by day? That the only way we can have eternal life is to put our faith into the things that God has put in our lives, and that is Jesus Christ. And if we are putting our faith into the things that God has cast into the sea, namely our good works, namely our good name, namely our ability to you know, look at others and make them think that we got it all together, if that's where we're putting our faith in, I want to remind you that that's the sea of darkness, that's the sea of chaos. You must come to the light of Jesus Christ who is the light of the world, by faith, by faith. You know, rarely in life are there big moments. Rarely in life are there big moments. Most of life, rather mundane, everyday stuff, just that we do. But when those big moments do come, we must not miss them. The good news of God's forgiveness is a message for all of this. This moment, you are, by God's grace, precisely where you need to be to hear this message of God's salvation that comes through Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. This is the definition of a big moment. Are you hearing it? It's soaking into your life. Are you living in the power of God's forgiveness? Or are you continuing to flounder in the sea of oblivion, in the chaos of a system that has been cast into the sea? But what Jesus is communicating to his disciples means more than just simply that the tradition of the temple is done away with. It also means that the priestly system is done away with. Because now Jesus, who was crucified, rose again on the third day, presented himself alive by many proofs, ascended into heaven, is exalted there today from his throne. He will come to judge the living and the dead. But until that day of judgment comes, he lives to make intercession for his people. To have faith in God means that as disciples of Jesus, we go to the throne of grace. And in the throne of grace and at the throne of grace, we find mercy to help in time of need. I no longer need a Levitical priest to do what Jesus is doing for me at this very moment. 
My sins can be forgiven as I confess them to God in the name of Jesus. And as I do that and I receive his forgiveness, I experience freedom. True freedom, guilt, shame removed. All of it rooted in the authority of Jesus Christ. But you know, just because I don't need a priest doesn't mean I shouldn't follow the scripture's instruction to confess my sins one to another, James writes. Confess your sins one to another. Pray for one another that you might be healed. In the American version of Christianity, it's a private act. That's between me and God. And much of the weakness of the church is because we have made our Christian faith a private act between me and God. And never should anybody know that I might have a problem or that I might have committed a sin. Oh no, what will they think about me? And yet if you follow the logic of Jesus, who says to his disciples, as he appears to be transferring this authority to them and waking up them up to the reality of this authority he says whatever you ask in prayer believe that you have received it will be yours and whenever you stand praying forgive if you have anything against anyone so that your father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses following that logic the apostles write well yes we are to confess our sins one to another pray for one another that we might be healed you may not believe it, but it is true. Some of the most profound and most important moments of my own spiritual growth have been when I have humbled myself before a fellow disciple. I have confessed to them my sin, and I have rejoiced then in the words, I forgive you. I forgive you. I pray that the weakness of the church will no longer be found in our reluctance. In our reluctance to confess our sins one to another, pray for one another that we might be healed. You see, the presentation of Jesus in Mark's gospel forces a question that each person must ask. Has your life, has your life been transformed by the love of God who has come to you through Jesus Christ? Has your life been transformed by this love through Jesus who died so that your sins would be forgiven? Have you personally experienced this transformative encounter with the crucified, risen Lord Christ? Are you, through Christ, turning each and every day from your sins as you place faith in Jesus and are you confidently living in your salvation as Jesus said, have faith in God. Lost luggage, a lost dog, all pale in comparison to a lost soul, a lost community, and a lost nation. But hope is not lost when we have faith in God. 
Because through the obedience of Jesus, who was precisely where he needed to be, the mountain was cast into the sea. Which means that we can now encourage each other to pray. And as we pray, believe that what we ask, we will receive. We can live with full confidence in Jesus that when we pray, we too can receive forgiveness. And that we can have the power to forgive others because in the name of Jesus, our Father in heaven has forgiven us. Amen and amen. Our Lord, I ask that right now that you would be at work in our lives. Any who are bound by a feeling or a sense of unforgiveness. For any who have never called upon you in a saving way, I pray that even now, their heart and their mind would be directed to you and they would indeed be saved. Father, I thank you for the table that you have given us, the table of our Lord through which we can come and confess and own up to the reality of who we really are, not the facade of what we want other people to think we are. That at this table presented before us, the body of Christ broken, the blood of Christ shed, so that our sins would be forgiven. give you a bit of time here to consider my words, to prepare your own heart, to call upon the Lord, and be ready to join together with the community to celebrate our forgiveness in Christ. Let's be quiet before him.